Hello and welcome to another episode of Political Agenda brought to you by New Narrative with me, PJ Thumb. Today, we're talking with Jolene Tan, who comes back for another appearance on Political Agenda to talk about her new book, After the Inquiry. But before we do that, first, uh, I am wearing a black and white batik shirt. There's two of us sitting in front of a big map of Southeast Asia. My pronouns are he, him. Political Agenda is brought to you by New Narrative, which is a movement for democracy in Southeast Asia and which is entirely membership supported. So if you find this useful, please do join New Narrative as a member at newnarrative.com slash join or donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. We really, really need your help. And now, Subash. Okay, so here we are back with Jolene Tan, who is author of After the Inquiry, which is a novel on censorship, propaganda, idealism, and everyday complicity and authoritarianism in Singapore. Welcome back to the show, Jolene. Thanks for having me. Would you like to, uh, before we start, just briefly introduce yourself, uh, what you're wearing, your pronouns uh, okay. for our audience? Yeah, hi, uh, my name is Jolene Tan. Uh, I'm a fiction writer. Um, prior to After the Inquiry, I also had another novel called A Certain Exposure. Uh, and I've also written a children's picture book. Um, in addition to all this, I used to be um, head of advocacy and research at AWARE um, and to run public communications there. Um, so I've been quite active in civil society for the last few years. Right, um, and that definitely informs your, your work. Yeah. Oh, yes, but sorry, I interrupted oh, you. Uh, yeah, I'm wearing a blue dress with birds and flowers on it. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. Um, although I'm also a very great fan of the general singular the for mm. all humans. Okay, so uh, the, the, the book is After the Inquiry. This is a copy for those of you who are watching on our live stream uh, in our Discord channel for our members and who are watching this on YouTube, you can see the copy. By the time this comes out, it will be available uh, online. Um, it's published by Ethos Books, so it'll be available with them and wherever you get your singlet from. And at the end of a very exhausting week, right, we are recording this on the 11th of March. And um, under a week ago, I was questioned by the police. On Monday, Terry Shi, editor-in-chief of the Online Citizen Asia, had his home raided. And then he was questioned by the police on Tuesday. And then, of course, Malaysia always, you know, doesn't want to be left mm. behind. They have brought in Fami Reza to be questioned. So it's a whole week in which a lot of people who are dissidents, activists, who are um, information and content distributors and creators have been uh, interrogated and questioned in Malaysia and Singapore. And so that sets the backdrop for this novel, which, uh, oh my goodness, how do we even begin to... It's um, equal parts... Um, angering and aggravating which I, I, I is in in a very good way um, you know the the fact that it can evoke such emotions right but um, why don't you tell us a bit about the novel um, maybe summarize what you can and then um, tell us why you wrote it go ahead Jolene tell us about the book okay um, so after the inquiry I would describe as a bureaucratic whodunit mm. um, with a touch of fast and footnotes Many, many footnotes. Many footnotes. Yes. Um, so um, the essential setup is that there has been a violent incident in the police force and there is a police sergeant who lies in a coma. And this has been determined by 
internal affairs to be a fairly open and shut case. Um, there were some junior officers who were uh, involved in some misconceived Russian roulette, and then one of them ends up in a coma. And then um, the novel itself is written from the perspective of a senior civil servant known as Wuntek, uh, or Tek, as he generally calls himself. Um, and it takes the form of a report that he's written because he's been asked by the ministry to go back and speak to kind of the key players in this event, even though it's an open and shut case. And he doesn't even really know why either, but he goes ahead and does it um, together with a younger assistant, Nitya. And so it follows uh, the interviews that they do with various people who were involved in the incident. Um, and it takes the form of a sort of draft report, mm. uh, which... Um, gradually builds to the, the events. Yes, of the, the big denouement. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Because, of course, you know, it's a novel, so nothing yeah. was ever as simple as it appears at the beginning. Oh, no, no, no. Um, okay, so as as an activist, I, I, I was just, I think, really, really, and I, I think you've had a lot of feedback similar to this, um, it, exhausted um, and angered by the things that, we read, mm. right? And in particular, um, by the character of Buntik, because mm. so much of it is so familiar mm. to the ways in which activists are lectured at, condescended mm. to, abused in Singapore. So before we even get into the book itself, I really need to ask, is Buntik based on a real person or people? Do people like him actually exist in Singapore? And if they do... What on earth are we going to do? Um, okay, so I mean, uh, yeah, this is the question that... So I did an Instagram takeover for the publisher on the yeah. weekend and, uh, you know, followers of the Instagram kind of asked me questions and quite a few people asked, is this book fiction or is it, is it actually just a real events? Are these real people? Um, and I think the way that I would put it is this. Um, it is informed by my experiences and I think our experiences, what I've heard from others involved in the business of civil society, but also just, you know, ordinary people responding mm. to policies and politics. Um, and I like to think that I have captured some of the spirit of uh, those experiences and the, the communication surrounding these areas. But I don't, it's not, certainly not intended to be a kind of strictly literal you know, representation. I yeah. As I say, I I feel I've captured the spirit, but not necessarily the the letter. Um, definitely, I think because I was involved in civil society, insofar as I have encountered public servants and office holders, I have often been a awkward and irritating presence, and so um, my interactions with them will reflect that. I have a I what I would describe as a gadfly eyes view of this. Right. Um, I'm not going to pretend that it captures the totality of what it's like, and certainly there's no um, suggestion, I hope, in the book that that, that all public service uh, employees or officials are, are uniformly or homogeneously like this. Um, but certainly these experiences of being condescended to, being hectored, uh, being kind of almost willfully misunderstood, I think are familiar to many people. Yes. Yeah. And are not 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 unfounded in reality. Mm. I think one experience that I had that really um astonished me was once when uh I tried to suggest to some public servants that 
because they had communicated the rules in a confusing way yeah. and that behind the criteria that they applied, there was another secret laxer criteria, but they wanted people to just appeal to get to that criteria. I said to them, why don't you just communicate the actual criteria up front? Because people are getting panicked when they think, for example, they have to move out of their home or something. Like, people want to obey the rules. And they actually laughed at me. They found the idea that they should communicate clearly because people were doing their good faith best to comply, uh, oh to God. be slightly, like, amusing. <laughs> oh, my God. I just find that so infuriating because ultimately we all want to you know we all want to construct the society in which we all um, work together for the benefit of that society and hiding things from people mm -hmm. uh, does not help people to work towards the benefit you know the, the lack of clear rules and that's the, the, that's the thing. This gatekeeping of information mm -hmm. then creates a hierarchy in which people who know how things work and actually have the information are able to use that not just to manipulate people who don't, but whether they realize it or not, benefit themselves. And, and then the problem is, and this is where Buntek really, I think, infuriates when you read his justifications is that they then justify it mm -hmm. in terms of vague things like the greater good mm -hmm. when it's really their good right in terms of the national interest when it's really their interests and he's because they have these flexible supple minds they can come up with all these crazy justifications when you know even for things which are just blatantly wrong yeah yeah so I guess for our audience, they're, they're probably sitting there a bit puzzled right now. Yeah. How would you describe Buntek? Um, so I guess um, maybe I'll try and describe it in terms of uh, what I thought as you were saying that. I think partly the novel reflects um, a sort of mental journey that I think I went through as well. Um, growing up in the 90s when arguably Singapore's or the PAP's political terraforming project was at its peak, right? You had um, got rid of the independent press, you had got rid of the pesky student movements, and you had uh, the fresh memory of spectrum to remind people what happened if they stepped out of line. Um, and, and on the other hand, you didn't yet have uh, blogs or independent media that was based on the internet. This was before the days of, for instance, the, you know, the iconic photograph from Alex Ao in the 2006 elections that showed um, the size of the crowd gathered at a Workers' Party rally. So you had this sort of strange space of uh, um, almost like a blank slate for the, um, gov the PAP to impress upon people whatever they wished in terms of information. I'm not saying there weren't alternative voices, but their ability to reach... Um, people at large, I think, was extremely circumscribed. And um, I was sort of forming my mental picture of the world at this time, right? Mm -hmm. And there's also no very little reason for me as a kind of, you know, Anglophone, Chinese, Singaporean with upwardly mobile family and um, sort of a very 
academic temperament, there was little reason for me to be disenchanted. And so I absorbed these um, pictures of what the world was like, including this view that um, not only was the PAP view of Singapore and politics correct, but almost that it was like morally inevitable. Mm. To disagree is objectively irrational, Mm, right? So um, I think that it took me time to deprogram from this because I think I absorbed it very earnestly and then I tried very hard to make everything that I encountered fit with this picture that I had been given. Right. Um, But ultimately, it just kind of fell apart because it's not an accurate depiction of the world. And if you inquire um, thoroughly and earnestly, you will find that it's not an accurate picture of the world. Yeah. Um, and so I think that um, in a way, Buntek is like the um, the propagator of this view mm-hmm. that there is a um, objectively rational way of doing governance and politics in Singapore that is accessible to the uh, the exalted few who have the brains and the temperament to uh, access it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that comes through in the way that he. Um, processes what goes on around him and that it's also very much about um, not just having this view but actively cultivating it in those around you by both um, persuasion but also by uh, other means that may be less yes. less fair the, the creating I think he ex- explicitly says that at one point um, without well not going into explicit detail but but he explicitly thinks it about creating incentive structures around another character to control their behavior if necessary yes and and that really reflects a certain neoliberal technocratic view of the world mm. which the PAP still embodies that if you just create the right structures institutions policies problems will be solved you know with no acknowledgement that people are you know in reality we're messy, we're, mm. we're human, mm-hmm. right? We're conflicting, we have conflicting ideas. We don't act rationally, we don't act in our own interest, um, and our values differ and change from day to day, minute to minute, but also our values are not the values of the people in power, the people in everyone is different. And yet, this it feels like he is a cog in a greater machine mm-hmm. and his devotion to keeping that machine going is is absolute mm-hmm. and and that's one of the things that um i'm i'm actually curious about because um for singaporeans who are listening especially those who've had interaction civil service right this sort of picture you paint of buntik about the ultimate company man institution man who believes in uh, this very rationalist way mm-hmm. um will be all too familiar but you also seem to imply that uh, it is, it, it, it's also out of date in some ways, right? Because at the opening of the novel, he also acknowledges at some point, I think very early on, I, I, I don't think this is a spoiler, but that his career is kind of stuck. Uh, mistakes uh, have been made that he blames on um, you know the the minister that he attached himself to, mm. uh, getting voted out power, whom I assume is is an, an analog for Giorgio, 
uh, you can tell me if it's wrong. Uh, so I, I am not going to answer any questions that have to do with <laughs> yes. anybody being in love or anyone else. Uh, it's very important to me that this is fiction. And it's not, yes. it's not a butt-covering thing. It's more that... Um, and okay, this is just going to sound quite weird, but okay. I think although um, the fiction that I write definitely tries very hard to reflect my observations of the world around me, I do regard it as standing apart in its own thing. And, right. and ultimately, if you ask me why I write the book, all I can say is that I read and write entirely for my own pleasure. And um, part, to me, part of that is accurately communicating a certain vision or spirit of the world. But I um, would consider it, uh, if it's not too pretentious to say, I consider it a bit of an artistic failure if everybody mapped one-on-one -on -one onto... Right. Specific people or things that happen mapped directly into specific incidents. Okay, so yeah. before I come back to my original question, yeah. let, let me explore that a bit because I do feel some of it is a bit too on the nose, right? You had this high flying minister who lost power. You have a certain deputy commissioner who, as a kid, wrote an email that caused a scandal, but because he's a white horse, he then rises up the ranks and he's the son of the deputy prime minister. And uh -huh. that has a very specific analogue in real life too. Sure. Right? You have researchers who talk about inequality and homelessness. Mm -hmm. And again, very specific analogues, right? And those researchers then um, are targeted or get in trouble um, you know, are attacked by the establishment. You've got, uh, um, in the background, they talk about certain, you know, social political sites, uh, re reporting about issues, mm -hmm. you know. And it just there's just so many parallels. Um, and I, I just made a bunch of, of notes here about some of the analogues, which I've mentioned, uh, which I guess to, rather than put you on the spot, I won't say... <laughs> But it's it's a bit too obvious. Okay, I mean, let me let me let me kind of come back to that um, yeah. by saying that uh, obviously I pay mm -hmm. attention to the news, yeah. right? So um, and obviously things are more convincing or realistic in a work of fiction if they somewhat resemble things that we know around us. For instance, if you describe a place that you go to, you want to be able to accurately pick up details. Uh, that give you a sense of the feel of the place, mm -hmm. right? So I'm not going to say that um, I did not have anything that ever happened that was real in mind, but I guess I don't necessarily want things to be read as um, a direct comment on uh, those events yeah. so much as drawing on them for inspiration. And I think right. if I may retreat to my my other fictional precedents, right? Mm -hmm. This is a... This, uh, practice of dramatizing the cold face of decision making is I didn't invent it. There are plenty of bureaucratic um, novels or TV series mm. um, that do similar things. So, for example, you have obviously you know the 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 um, fictional civil servant without parallel would be Sir Humphrey Appleby mm. in Yes Minister, or you have the. Um, the 2000s update, the thick of it with Armando Inucci. And then the, yes. there you have... So her, Sir Humphrey FOB was the uh, ultimate career bureaucrat interested in maintaining his own position in a stable hierarchy. Um, so there's a kind of underlying thesis that the United Kingdom was run not by elected representatives, but by career bureaucrats. And then you have the 2000s version, which is actually it's neither the bureaucrats nor the representatives, but these unaccountable party spin doctors who... 
um, are continually making things up on the fly mm-hmm. just to get headlines. Yeah. So I would also say that um, as I looked at events in Singapore, I saw elements of both these things as well, right? Singapore has got some of these dynamics, like the, the incredible growth of kind of government activity that seems to be dedicated to reputational management. Mm-hmm. I mean, things like, um, you know, people are very upset when ministries posted what appear to be very personal details of mm. people seeking yes. assistance. Well, new narrative has explicitly criticised that, yeah. Yeah, uh, for the sake of, uh, seemingly for the sake of primarily of their own reputational management. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I, no, I, I don't know whether data on this actually exists, but I sometimes think that Singapore must have the highest number of glossy... Um, government videos per capita mm. in the world, like just continually inundated with these videos of like heartwarming stories of people interacting with public agencies with mm. like, you know, soft, gentle, emotive music. Um, and then like last year, I think it was last year, there's definitely been a year when like the Ministry of Home Affairs PR budget was like $332 million. What? <laughs> just like, what is this? 332 mil- million with oh my god yeah it's incredible I mean it's a, it was PR like budget one PR, ministry international relations and like kind of PR and like various other communications related things but anyway to draw this back so um, we started with this question of like these real event, possible real analogs um, yeah. yeah I think that um, I operated in the space of wanting to create convincing and relevant fiction. And so I think it's a combination of using these kind of um, tools and visions that I've seen in other kinds of fiction Mm -hmm. um, and combining it with some sense of where things are here Mm -hmm. to kind of create what I hope is something new. Okay, okay. I I, I get that, right? But it feels like, to me, you've... Because maybe Singapore is so small... And the parallels you use just feel a bit too on the nose that because we live in a period where actually uh, a lot of people are simply writing fictionalized um, accounts of real events Mm. as a way of commenting on those events and commenting on privilege, power, institution, structures. So we live in the era of the crown, for example, Mm. whose main participants are all very much still alive and in power. That's true. Uh, there was David was has play stuff happens about the um, Iraq war yeah. and in it, you know everyone was just they're, they're real the real people real names he had people playing Blair mm-hmm. and Bush mm-hmm. and Rumsfeld and Cheney, you know and he put that on stage and mm-hmm. it was uh, very well received and mm-hmm. critically very well reviewed. Yeah. So it kind of feels like if if you're going to want to comment on certain things or certain people. Uh, we live in an era where, you know, you just go ahead and write um, stories which can comment on those people. Yeah. I suppose the only thing in Singapore is fear of getting sued, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to discourage people from um, drawing the parallels if it speaks to them. I just... I'm absolutely not going to myself say that that's what it is, in part because, and maybe this is like grandiose of me, but like I want the work to endure, right? Right. Like I can watch Yes Minister now without knowing all the details of 1980s Mm. uh, British politicians. Um, In the Loop is clearly a film about the Iraq war as well, but you can watch it and understand what it's getting at without that. And I I kind of don't Mm. want 
the book to be legible um, only slash primarily as a uh, um, an intervention in current media debates. And that's part mm. why I left um, being involved in current media debates to write a work of fiction because I right. wanted to work in the what I considered to be a... Um, a a different kind of plane, and I wanted to not have my head full of like how is this part of a of this specific battle of like newspaper articles at the moment or something. I mean, mm. it's definitely there. There's no yeah. way you can avoid it. But um, I guess I just don't see it as as the primary identity of the book. Yeah, yeah, I I I, I get that. I mean, rather than working at the level where you're constantly fighting every single battle um, and getting so deep in the weeds, you know, that you're, you become part of that whole environment of everything has, you know, has spin, everything has multiple layers. You're trying to step back and um, work from a level of that's much more based on broader principles and values. Yeah. Yeah. So I I kind of think of this book as um, when I think about it, for me, it has, a kind of miniaturized clarity. That's what mm-hmm. it's intended to achieve. Um, in the same way that, um, okay, I mean, this is maybe a slightly weird <laughs> parallel, but like, you know, uh, Jane Austen novels are like a f- four families meeting in drawing rooms talking. This yeah. is a limited number of people, but right. there is nevertheless a slice of the society that they come from. And it's the same with this book. I feel that by... Um, Focusing, zooming really far in on a single incident and watching how the different um, actors from different uh, institutions or different angles come into this one incident, then we can see a vision of the society more broadly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, I think the way that I would put it is yeah. um, this is not fake news so much as it's deliberate falsehood. <laughs> you're gonna say that you're gonna aren't you gonna get yourself in trouble it's if we can't if we can't I'd have say, deliberate falsehood in the world of fiction where can we oh yeah okay fair enough okay but but it comes back to um the the question i was asking yeah. earlier right and actually we have a comment in the discord from olivia who says i don't think you can write a piece of fiction without it commentating on some aspect of the world um, you know, you can't write something that just... It, it's hard to write something that exists in a vacuum. Even Avatar is um, is a sort of uh, echo mm-hmm. fable. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally not going to... And I hope I have not suggested that it exists in a vacuum. Merely yeah. that my desire is not to... Um, to... I mean, it's, it's not a... It's not a political cartoon. Like the characters mm-hmm. are not meant to be direct one for one stand-ins mm-hmm. of anyone. Yeah. And you, you, you also mentioned Jamie Austin, but in your in your um was it the sort of uh, thank you notes at mm-hmm. the end with acknowledgements, you mentioned Mansfield Park. Yeah, yeah. So you're very much inspired by that sort of idea of just um people talking and then a picture of a whole society emerging from those yeah, interactions. I think in that the in that particular reference also has something else going on there. Um and okay, so this also goes back to your first question about whether Buntek is somebody. I mean, I think first and foremost, it's he's a fictional character, um, and uh, I mean, while some of the attitudes and 
um, behaviorisms I've given behaviors behaviors that I've given him may be recognizable. He is also meant to be a, I would say, slightly um, intensely weird character of his own. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and he's partly inspired by uh, by Henry Crawford of Mansfield Park, who um, for those who know Mansfield Park, um, there's this very weird sequence in which the families or the young people stage like a kind of home uh, home theatre performance mm -hmm. and um, that is where a lot of the uh, kind of hidden currents between people are revealed and what's interesting about Henry Crawford is that he is a, a consummate actor he can perfectly just pick up any text and play the role that um, is in front of him uh, but it is unclear to what extent when he uh, ends up playing the role of the devoted, sincere suitor of the heroine, Fanny Price, it is quite unclear to what extent he is actually himself um, convinced by his, the role that he has taken up. Has, it, has, his, has his pretend admiration of something that is good led him to also be transformed and to himself come to approach behaving in a way that is good? So there's a bit of a... I feel that there's a bit of a um, similar question going on here. Um, some people ask me, like, oh, what was it like to write a character so devoid of empathy? And uh, I think part of my question is, um, I'm not sure that it's true that um, Tech as a character is entirely devoid of empathy. Is it perhaps more the case that um, if you are a sufficiently fragmented individual, um, that you can experience empathy, but that it's kind of, it may just be uselessly adrift in your self and does it actually um translate into action when the chips are down yeah so okay this is a slight kind of literary <laughs> detour but but that was also uh, part of my um thinking in going through this um book um and in a sense um the other character the other civil service character who features very prominently Nitya. um very much like Fanny Price in Mansfield, Mansfield Park, her, her main moral mode of action is simply to say no and to um, hold on to the core values that are supposed to be at the heart of the tradition that she has entered as a kind of semi-outsider, um, but where it's very questionable whether those values are still um, being realised there. Yeah. Right. So are you suggesting then that Tick is also... Um, as much as he shapes the institution, he is also shaped by the by his admiration and the incentive structures of the institution around him. And so, in a sense, he is he also for all that he um, thinks and acts like he has agency. He also lacks agency. So this is a, something else that I wanted to explore in the book: is the ways in which. Um, there are differing levels of agency or complicity in uh, perpetuating injustice. Um, and you will see it with all the different characters that mm. they make, uh, they have different relationships to the truth and different levels of um, interest in promoting or obscuring the truth. Um, and this arose in part because of this experience, which I'm sure you will have uh, observed in civil society, where um, 
you know, often like people get, there's different levels of like censorship and self-censorship, right? You have yeah. the people who will like, even before you've told them to jump, it's not even they, they, you say jump and they say how high, they say, mm. you want me to jump? Mm. How high? Mm. Yeah. And then you have other people who will um, kind of be more on the fence. Maybe they're sympathetic to certain reforms, but they don't want to come out and say so. And um, they will like, oh, I'll support you behind the scenes, but I'll never put my name up front. And then if things get difficult, you don't know whether they will actually stand by you or whether they'll stab you in the back to preserve themselves. Yeah. Um, and then you have, you know, like the whole the whole kind of spectrum of, oh dear, um, of different levels of willingness to defy um, authority. Now, some of this obviously is a function of um, how many, how much resources one person, anyone has, or any institution or individual has. So it's not straightforwardly about moral blame and saying that okay, you know, only if you are Jonathan Wem and you will go to jail for your uh, principles, then are you a good person? Like I absolutely wanted to avoid that, um, but I wanted to show the reality of the many, many different levers that can be pulled with many, many different levels of culpability mm. and entirely human motivations. Right. Um, for not speaking up against an injustice and uh, how we arrive at this kind of apparent consensus mm. on silence. Yeah. Um, and you see this all the time with uh, civil society. I mean, I remember being in situations where um, people would be trying very hard to say, oh, we need to find a way to explain why we're doing this. And the why we're doing this would be that there had been some kind of state intervention ah. and mm. um, some, you know, if you suggested like, shall we just say the truth that the reason why we're doing this is that the state has intervened in some way. And then there's this is kind of like crickets chirping mm. and people just cannot um, contemplate engaging in that confrontation. Mm. Um, and I believe very much that this is a very nuanced situation. P different people can afford to take on different levels of confrontation, but the way that we almost, um, many people sort of reflexively refuse to even consider it, um, I think has trapped us. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so that's part of what I wanted to explore in this book as well. And it's not just really about people in the civil service, right? Although, of course, you know, that, um, there is uh, sort of as 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 you've painted a sort of everyday complicity, mm -hmm. and you do have choices at all levels. And resistance doesn't have to be one way, or acting morally doesn't have to be in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. um, but it's our entire society as a whole, and the kind of choices that we make on a daily basis about the things that we say or do the even just you know the choice of what to like or not like on facebook mm -hmm. or share on social media mm -hmm. but also just the things that we say to people um and you know the the when i was first right like starting out in 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 this whole field like mm -hmm. the the sort of oh now is not the right time uh, you know, or is there a, there a smarter way of doing it, mm. right? So even that, it, you know, like, and motivated out of concern mm -hmm. uh, for for good intentions, also then ends up supporting the injustice that is being perpetuated by the current system. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so the one thing that really um, struck me was 
um, and and I quoted part of his book in the epigraph of this novel. Um, Peter Pomerantsev, in his book Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, uh, which is an account of his experiences in post-Soviet Russia. His mm. his family fled the Soviet Union and then he went back afterwards. Um, he talks about how um, there was a society where people would all just have no fixed identity and so they could they would go home and listen to opposition radio but then they would go out later and like uh, pay tribute to the president in public mm -hmm. and they would say it's not that I'm a bad person I'm just playing the game mm. this is how the game is played this is how you do things in the smart way right. this is how you survive um, and I was very interested in this notion of fragment fragmented individuality and a fragmented consciousness that allows you to take on all these different roles. So th there's the play acting thing again, um, that will allow this wider structure to survive, even though people have their kind of secret liberal hearts or their, their, their secret sympathies. Um, in a sense, all of these things can coexist, but if you don't act, um, the outcome is the same as if you yeah. had no sympathies at all. Yeah. And in some ways, and this, this again, coming back to the character of Buntek, seems like he may have started out being different, um, but he has been shaped by his choice to play this game and become the consummate player of the game. And, and that has become who he is. But if he had made different choices, um, he would be a very different person. Yeah, and I think it's true. I mean, it's true of everybody, right? And so, um, again, obviously he's the main character, but, but as I said, I wanted to also depict different stakes and different uh, attitudes and approaches um, in the whole range of characters as well. I mean, I think that for me, um, the thing that... Uh, maybe this is stepping away from the, the book for a moment. The, the, actually, the only way to um, square the circle, I think is if we recognize that actually the only game that will get us where we need to be in the long run is solidarity mm. with other people. And that if we keep trying to play the game in like our individual silos, then, uh, I mean, then we get played. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Because it will always, as long as um, the powerful people hold the cards, it will always be in each of our individual self-interest to knife one another. Yeah to get whatever they are handing out today. Um, and then as long as we remain weak, then they can always choose what, what to hand out. Yeah. I, I remember, um, you know, starting when I was first publishing uh, about Cold Store, about uh, using all the declassified documents and, and people asking, well, is there more? Are there more declassified documents? And I was like, well, the Singapore government doesn't declassify documents. And someone actually asked me, well, what if, right, you join the government and you be a loyal soldier for 10, 20 years and you mm. work your way in to the point where you have access to these documents and then you can find these documents and release them. And I was like, are you, are you joking? <laughs> are you, are you, I mean, I understand what you're trying to say, but like that means you'll have spent 20 years perpetuating the government mm. and working for its benefit all to get the documents, you know, so you'll have created, done all this for, for what? For one set of documents, right? If you want to fight authoritarianism, fight authoritarianism. Otherwise, 
you're complicit in authoritarianism and what you're suggesting will actually mean that all your efforts will be to support the system except for this one act and 20 years down the road who on earth knows how you think because I certainly am very different from how I was 20 years right. ago yeah no absolutely yeah. and I think I think the reality of um, living and operating in this society is that it's very hard to ever not be complicit yeah. but I think for me what's important is that we um, recognise our individual acts of complicity for what they are rather mm -hmm. than trying to pretend that it's all part of some grand game yeah. where uh, actually we're winning. Yeah. Um, I think that if we, you know, if people say I, I, I'm at this point not willing to trade this to achieve that goal, that's fine. And different people have different circumstances. Different people have different thresholds. Um, what I think we shouldn't do is, is lie to ourselves about yes. it. Yeah. Self-awareness. Yeah. And, um, you know, also less like people be like feel frustrated i also want to remind us that it's 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 a two-sided um you know uh coin or whatever that mm -hmm. uh you're complicit but you can also resist mm -hmm. every day in different ways right and i've talked about james c scott weapons of the week ways to resist which may not seem overtly like resistance but are forms of everyday resistance and, you know, James C. Scott's work is actually very re relevant to Singapore, uh, even though it's a lot of it is based on um, Malaysia or whatever. Um, okay, so I want to come back to my question earlier then, yeah. because, um, I'm, I mean, I'm assuming the whole book is a criticism, a critique of how Buntek thinks. But it also seems like implicitly, because at the opening of the book, he, his career has kind of come to a halt, right? And that's why I mentioned, we started by mm. mentioning the minister who was voted out unexpectedly. Mm. Um, he's, for all his talents, he's come to a sort of uh, plateau, a standstill, right? His, his meteoric rise has halted. Mm -hmm. um, but also you've, you have talked about this being born out of a certain... Uh, idea, um, formative experience of the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, and Buntik seems to reflect this, um, the, the 90s in the sense that there was this idea then that um, at, at the height of neoliberalism, that if we just get the incentive structures right, mm. you know, which the PAP still believes in. But today, such a person can't succeed in Singapore. And I think politicians, leading politicians also recognize that and are responding and changing to that and looking at members of the fourth generation of PAP leadership mm. um, and other politicians, they recognize that uh, circumstances have, have changed. Mm. So both in how you describe the formative experience of this book, but also how you situate Buntek within, uh, you know, and his career and its, its sort of, lack of ascension mm -hmm. um, it seems to imply that he's a bit of a dinosaur now was that intentional or is this um, maybe just a reflection of how this book arises out of a certain time period which is no longer totally you know or the, the values of that time period are increasingly um, no longer you know accepted and yeah. and less and less relevant today. That's very interesting. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that I had thought about it that way. I can definitely see how that works mm -hmm. in the book. 
Um, but I guess you can tell from my sort of being struck by what you're saying that um, it's not an angle that I had thought about so um, explicitly before. But I can definitely see how that works. I mean, I think there is definitely a sense in which the book is possibly contains some anachronisms. Like, you know, I'm not sure um, that I necessarily reflect the way that young people are or like a critical young person would be. I think perhaps in a way Nithya may also be a bit of a 90s throwback in some in some respects mm. um, or, or at least maybe a 2000s throwback. Um, uh, yeah. No, I, I didn't think about that that specific kind of... I guess as a historian, you would look at it in terms of, of errors. That was That's quite natural. Yeah, I yeah, guess so. But I hadn't, I hadn't actually kind of had that thought well we're we're both like um you know of of a certain age i mean okay i'll say i'm 41 right and we both were had very formative experience Mm -hmm. where we were in our teens in the 90s and it really shaped us and um maybe which is what which is what this is all about by the way okay (laughs) check out her earlier book a certain exposure but ibuntek is also how old is he um, it's not made there's clear, a point when he's talking about uh, Hafiz is the 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 um, man in the coma, and he's mm-hmm. talking about Hafiz's mum, who is, I believe, in her she's in her late fifties. Right. And then shortly afterwards, he says um, that they are in some sense of a similar cohort, although he is um, maybe eight or nine years younger than her. Ah, okay. Yeah. So right, he's right. yeah he's on verging on the fifties. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and of course he was. Um, well, actually, I don't know. If that's that's a spoiler. So let's. I, I won't finish what I was going to say. Um, but what what was your intention then with depicting Buntik as someone whose career has stalled in spite of his incredible talents and devotion to the machine, rather than someone who is still rising significantly? Um. I mean, oh, how does one describe this without any spoilers? I mean, he has certain... Um, he does have certain incentives to act in particular ways, mm-hmm. uh, partly as a result of this this desire to uh, be further along than he is, right? So that, okay. that influences... Maybe we'll come back to sections. this in the spoiler yeah. section. Yeah. But let me just... I had um, a few more questions uh, from, uh, from a non-spoiler perspective. <laughs> and one was about the framing, mm-hmm. right? Because you frame it as a report, mm-hmm. but then also there's all this personal detail, which you then... <laughs> yeah. You know, he footnotes as saying, well, his mental state is important. <laughs> but it ends up kind of feeling like he... Uh, a bit neither here nor there mm. in the sense of you have a report and some of it explicitly goes into um, transcript, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have descriptions of um, things that would in no way be included. Yeah. For example, there's a lunch yeah. with a group of you know young scholarship holders. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us about why you framed it this way and how you ended up framing it that way and the choices you made there? So the the kind of seed crystal for the whole book came uh, when I was reading uh, Tio Yuyen's This Is What Inequality Looks Like. And so I was sitting there in this time, this kind of in-between time, waiting for a meeting to start and uh, reading the book. And the book has footnotes and the book has endnotes and I was flipping back and forth. And then all at once I was like, I'm going to write a book with lots of footnotes, <laughs> and it will be um, f- 
about in an ambitious bureaucrat who trades in a kind of specious facticity in which the appearance of correctness and rationality are um, central to his understanding of uh, the world and of himself. Um, but in fact, something else is going on. Because I think it was the line in her book where she says, um, once we see, we cannot, must not unsee. And just actually, I've always thought of that line as the, the, the basis for the book. But I, was go I went back to that passage a few days ago and I realised that even above that, she had said that it was about looking at empirical evidence from a new angle to question our narratives and that it was both an external, the book was both an external as well as an internal dialogue. And so all of these things then informed my vision for this book. So um, part of what I am interested in is this whole notion of uh, the creation of narratives and the creation of myths and um, how what we see as truth becomes truth um, and how uh, lies become the official truth. Um, and so for me, the, the various um, fo the footnotes are there to give the, uh, and the, the report format, give the, um, the, the atmosphere or the tone of a very forensic and rational investigation. Mm -hmm. But clearly this person, psychologically, there's a lot of other things going on. And what we are actually seeing is the result of something much more chaotically human, um, even though it is presented with all this veneer of um, kind of documentation and correctness. Um, and so that, that's kind of what is going on there. And I also just was very interested in um, this idea of a, um, a confusing and unsympathetic uh, narrator mm. as our window into the truth. Because... Um, I guess on a technical level, I was quite attracted by this challenge that by definition, we can only see what he sees. Yeah. And yet, we must see more than he sees. And I saw that also as a way of us reading um, or piercing um, myths in the world around us. Yeah. Right. Okay, that, that, that's really fascinating. I, and, you know, as a historian, I really appreciate that approach. And as to a certain, you know, like uh, trying to both... Uh, tell a story but also critique how stories are made mm -hmm. and that is yeah I, 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 I that hadn't occurred to me but that is um, actually uh, a really interesting and you know definitely I um, yeah fully in, endorse <laughs> this the, the importance of understanding you know the, that narratives are not um, there, there is no absolute truth mm -hmm. right and narratives are constructed and they're negotiated. Which they're is why arguable. sometimes we need a new, a new narrative. Yes, a new narrative. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, you know, is part of what we're, we're trying to do at New Narrative and what I try to do with my work. So, yeah, okay. Um, but you, you, it's, I suppose it's never really made it explicit. So it's something you're, you're um, challenging the reader to think about and consider in as they read and think about uh, and construct, you know, and, and as yeah. they read the story. Yeah, they, they are also engaged in this inquiry and trying to puzzle out what the truth is. I was actually worried halfway through that I was, it was an unreliable narrator mm. because 
I was feeling like, you know, I suspected either things were being left out or he was misrepresenting things. But then it turned out um, he wasn't. In, uh, well, is that a spoiler? I suppose. I don't know. I mean, uh, he's in. There's a sense in which he's unreliable. Yeah. 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 I suppose we, we've come to about uh, 50 minutes in, so okay. I suppose we can get to the, the, the spoilerish spoilers. bit. Okay, if, don't watch further if you don't want to be spoiled. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a very, like, kind of... Um, it's a whodunit, so I, I, th- I would recommend not spoiling yourself. Yeah, I would, I definitely... So for those of you who are stopping here, the book is After the Inquiry, and I really recommend that uh, you get your own copy and you read it. And... Um, Definitely stick with it because the character of Thick, if you have, in my opinion, <laughs> right, if you have any sort of um, moral uh, compass to you, um, you you're going to find him infuriating. But that's the skill with which he's written. In, and uh, if you stick with him, um, then you, if you stick with the book, you will be, you will be very much rewarded. It's very thought-provoking and... Highly recommend it. Uh, so I guess just the, the last question is really about where you want to go with this novel. Um, usually when we have these podcasts, we end with, you know, asking people about their theory of change. Mm. But, you know, what kind of impact do you hope? Or, or rather, I guess, more broadly, theory of change. Like, is this, is writing these books part of how you want to create change in society? And what do you hope to achieve with these books? And what do you want to do you know, with these books, uh, where, where do you want to go with, with this in the future? Yeah, I mean, I guess in, like, there's a level on which it's all, like, extremely decadent. And like I said, I, like, I read and write for my own pleasure. Um, and I uh, want the books to be read because I think it will bring other people uh, a, a certain kind of pleasure. <laughs> Even the pleasure seems to also involve being very angry. Um, <laughs> in a way... Uh, I see these. I see fiction as being part of a um, very long-term conversation that can communicate certain visions of both uh, kind of these different structures in society, as well as that human experience of inhabiting them, um, in a way that I feel uh, is not available with such um, intensity in other media, or at least I, I don't feel that I can work in other media in that way. So um, I see myself, I see this as, yeah, as a contribution to this continuing question of what, who we are, um, what we look like to ourselves and what we want to look like to ourselves or where we want to go. Um, so I don't think it's like um, anything as, Directors, you know, I used to write like policy reports when I was working at Aware. It's not there's not that straight linear equation. We write this policy report because we want this particular law change or this particular policy changed. Um, but I guess if it can get people thinking about um, these various themes of uh, how truths are constructed and how power propagates itself, then uh, I think it will hopefully have done its job. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jolene. Thanks for stopping by on our podcast and giving us so much of your time to talk about this book. Oh, thank um, you for, for reading it so closely and uh, offering so many interesting comments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I think I can't, I can't help 
where if I if I really read a book, I have to I end up reading it in a kind of academic way where <laughs> you end up like questioning everything. Yeah. Um, so it's it's also a real pleasure to be able to talk to an author about their authorial author authorial authorial intent uh -huh. and what they're trying to do. And also, you know, because of the broader social political context in which this book is, is situated, right? Mm -hmm. It's been a lens for us to talk about a lot of different issues in Singapore, which, yeah, I really enjoyed, really appreciated. Yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed it too. Thank yeah. you for having me. <laughs> okay, and uh, as always, thank you to uh, our members on Discord who have attended, uh, commented, asked questions. I really appreciate all of you. Um, being there and if you'd uh, like to join as a member please go to newnarrative.com slash join or if you'd like to donate please go to newnarrative.com slash donate uh, if you're a member you get to watch these things live and take part in our discord and uh, you also support new narrative which as I mentioned is entirely dependent on membership revenue so uh, with that thank you to all of you who are listening or watching uh, the book is After the Inquiry by Jolene Tan go buy it now go read it really good very thought provoking and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.